Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hello, my name is David Horgan and I want to give you what I hope is a very unusual lecture about depression. No references really, no numbers, no graphs, just 100% clinical tips and tricks which will actually make treating depression uh, much more effective in my opinion. So these are all practical ideas that I have derived over many years of being a psychiatrist and acquiring a string of degrees which I describe as signs of a misspent youth. So what I wish I knew. So concentration and the ability to remember what people read is the actual monitor of depression. If people cannot concentrate and remember what they read, something is wrong with their brain biochemistry. Number two, keep varying the doses of antidepressants. Anxiety fuels depression and causes rapid mood swings. I want to show you some ways of turbocharging antidepressants, but if that makes you anxious, I'll just show you how to augment them. I want to tell you what is not depression and what is bipolar depression. I want to tell you how to choose an antidepressant, how to treat the side effects, which antidepressants of course have, the idea of a video selfie to protect people for future relapses, and I want to finish off talking about not only a few basics about suicide prevention, but also what family and friends can do in this new Australian world initiative, which is intoughtimestext.org, which you can look at after this broadcast. Thank you. So one of the first questions I ask patients after I have started treatment is, can you remember what you read? Uh, This is an automatic function of our CNS biochemistry and it tells you if the patient is well or not well. So if people can remember what they read, uh, that is fine. Some people can't even follow a conversation. Then uh, they perhaps can follow a conversation but not follow a TV program. They can perhaps read a magazine but not read a newspaper. And finally, they get to the stage where they can read and remember a book they are reading. People who've never been able to concentrate and remember, maybe you are picking up ADHD. Um, And if people say they are depressed, but their concentration and memory are fine, then it may well be something else, not chemical depression. The other thing I would like to emphasize to you is that, in fact, just like every other branch of medicine, when you give people medication for a syndrome, the syndrome eventually comes under control, and typically you cut back the dose of the medication. So, for example, if you're going to give people Valium, or something similar for anxiety. After a while, they get a bit drowsy, and it doesn't take a genius to realize that means that their anxiety levels have gone down and they now need less Valium. It's exactly the same with using SSRIs and SNRIs. They are very powerful anti-anxiety drugs, and when they eventually get control of the illness, the patient's ability to soak up X dose of the antidepressant reduces because they don't have quite so many symptoms. But if you keep pouring in the same dose, then they are going to get knocked around. And I've written what I call the YES syndrome. I wrote a letter to our college journal about 10, 15 years ago saying people have Y is for yawning, or they may not be yawning, but they may say, if I sit down, I'm drowsy, or my eyes feel heavy. 
they have expression problems. That's a particularly useful symptom to ask people. Do you have trouble finding the right word when you are thinking or talking? If so, they are over-medicated and you just reduce the dose. Um, and making simple mistakes, putting things in the wrong place, looking for things in the wrong place, or simple errors on texting, spelling, calculating. And indeed, they will tell you their memory is terrible. And uh, these are all good signs. It means their illness is getting better and they need less medication. And you, you just reduce the dose within 48, 72 hours, you will know the difference. The other thing, of course, is that various things take place in life which make depression worse. Stress, PMS perhaps, a virus, or just one of the fluctuations of people's biochemistry. In that case, they need to increase their antidepressant. And equally, if they get over-medicated and have word-finding problems, and they may still think they are depressed, but if they have word-finding problems, it is not depression. It is being over-medicated and just reducing the dose. And sometimes if you want to reduce the dose, they might find that two tablets of whatever you're giving them is too much. One tablet is too little. A useful trick is to take two tablets on even dates and one tablet on odd dates. The other thing that I think is overlooked and very important is the role of anxiety. Anxiety fuels depression. And it makes... if. It makes it impossible to treat depression if people have very high anxiety levels. So, yes, antidepressants may help with anxiety, but in a particular way, and paroxetine happens to be the most powerful anti-anxiety SSRI. Benzodiazepines have their role uh, in sleeping, or, or, sorry, in treating anxiety, but you actually, if possible want to give it for a limited period of time. And let me point out something about benzodiazepines. There's no difference really between hypnotics, sleeping tablets, and tranquilizers, uh, anti-anxiety agents. It's just a question of dosage. So for example, a tamazepam medication may put a patient to sleep. Half a tablet may therefore be very good for them to take during the day for anxiety, just like Valium is fine during the day for anxiety and fine in a higher, a higher dose, typically double the dose at night to help people sleep. And sleep is very important. Uh, it protects people and when people are suicidal or desperate, I often tell them take enough medication to go to sleep. There are worse things they could do. Uh, atypical antipsychotics, especially Abilify, Latuda and Seroquel, are very useful also in treating anxiety. Some people find Lyrica work. The other thing about anxiety is that when people say my depression goes up and down and I'm okay in the morning and I'm bad in the afternoons, that is not going to be depression, especially if people are taking antidepressants. That is going to be anxiety driving their symptoms. And uh, rather than juggling around the dose of an antidepressant, you may want to give them an anti-anxiety agent to smooth out those fluctuations. So if you actually want to make antidepressants work better, first thing is, if somebody is improving, then put up the dose. There is nothing magical about one tablet of any antidepressant. So put up the dose. If they continue to improve, but they say, I'm still not normal me or I'm not 100%, keep going every couple of weeks, put up the dose. You may think about adding lithium, but doing that for somebody with straightforward depression 
raises questions about what's their renal function going to be in 30 years and was it worth the risk. Epilim, sodium valproate has things going for it, but in Britain, for example, doctors are not allowed to give people, or give young women of childbearing age epilim without a consent form being signed literally every month. Atypical antipsychotics are the best thing to add to an antidepressant to make an antidepressant work better, and I've mentioned some of them. Rexalti is very good, has a particular indication in other countries for being a supplement to antidepressants, not so it would have to be done here off the PBS. Um, a particular trick that you may be interested in trying is giving people Cifrol or Simipex, the proper name is Pramipexol. It's actually an anti-Parkinsonian drug working on dopamine pathways. And if you add the medication to people, uh, within a few days, you tend to see a significant improvement. Um, so typically, I give people a half a tablet for a couple of nights, then one tablet for a few nights, then two, until we get up to about somewhere between two and four milligrams. And sometimes the results can be dramatic. Some people get terrible nausea, just stop. And some people get disinhibition, for example, start spending money or perhaps even become more sexually disinhibited than they otherwise would be. If you want to do something more complicated or getting desperate, then have a discussion with the patients. Patients want to take risks. Depression is extremely painful. And if you can say, look, here's something with a very low risk, but some unknown risk versus uh, it may actually make your depression much better, uh, the vast majority of patients want to take the risk. And it, for people on ordinary SSRIs, um, you can add Avanza, Edronax, Valdoxin, or Zyban without any particular risks at all. Um, I have put a reference there, if you'll forgive me, including one reference. Hensler wrote an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2022, surveying over 6,500 patients on proper randomized control trials. And surprise, surprise, two antidepressants actually are indeed better than one and produce better results. If you are concerned about people perhaps getting the serotonin syndrome, ask them to buy a box of periactin over the counter. Periactin is an anti-serotonin, antihistamine, um, and it actually therefore will stop serotonin syndrome if people start to get it if they take three tablets in one hit. You may uh, equally be shocked or encouraged to think, give people stimulants. Modafinil is a very weak stimulant. Ritalin is stronger. Dexamphetamine is the strongest and indeed the cheapest. You will need permits for Ritalin and Dexamphetamine. Occasionally you can get dramatic results. I'll just mention one case. A, a medical specialist comes in and says, my daughter is going to die any day. Please look after my grief reaction. I say, please bring your daughter along. I'm not good with grief reactions. The angry and very distressed and very sick daughter says, you are a psychiatrist, 31. What are you going to do? You're wasting my time. And so we go to war. I start medication. She takes overdoses. Uh, but she's already spent nearly a year in hospital and has been discharged as incurable. Finally, I add dexamphetamine to her psychotropics and all the lights come on. So much so that some time later, I say, 
you haven't made an appointment for quite some time and the reply is go away or words to that effect. I was having a very good day until I heard from you, which I put down as finally she's cured. Keep in mind depression is never just chemical. Depression is stress affecting vulnerable people and pushing them onto the depression pathway almost like from mild to severe diabetes. So you may want to do something about the way people deal with stress. So CBT is very useful. Uh, of course, there are problems and expenses in seeing a psychologist. Mood Gym and This Way Up offer free online CBT. Then, of course, mindfulness, ACT, yoga, things like that all can help some people with anxiety, which fuels depression. Some people may need psychotherapy. If you say to people, how pain, if you think about past issues and things that went wrong, do they still hurt you? If so, how bad is the pain on a zero to 10 scale? That tells you whether or not they need CBT. And DBT happens to be a very structured, complex, but highly effective form of psychotherapy, not just for borderline patients, but for a whole range of illnesses. Maybe it's not uh, depression. Pe people say I'm depressed and really what they mean is I am unhappy, things have gone wrong in my life or are going wrong and I'm unhappy. And the things that tell you are what I've written there, but in particular, Unhappy people are still able to concentrate. If they're interested in a book or a magazine, they can read it, concentrate, remember, automatically. And unhappy people will say, if they're out socially, uh, and I, they are totally well, and if I was to ring them up, they would say, no, the depression is gone. Depression doesn't come and go. It's always there in the background or in the foreground, whereas if it goes away completely in certain social situations, or on holiday, etc., then it's, it is not depression, it is unhappiness. So what else might it be? And I'll just flick through this very quickly. You can go back. I've talked about the YES syndrome. I, t I want to talk about bipolar illness manifesting itself as depression. High-level substance abuse prevents treatment. So if people are drinking heavily, or if they're smoking a lot of marijuana or taking other illegal drugs, small amounts of marijuana, alcohol are fine. High, high amounts prevent antidepressants working. Uh, severe anxiety will, as I say, induce depression. And then these personality characteristics keep making people vulnerable. Perfectionism, lack of assertiveness, and other things like chronic sleep deprivation and people who are in a lot of stress at work continuously or in their personal relationships are going to continuously have fuel added to the fire. Okay, suspicious depression is a phrase I generated from a lecture I listened to by Professor Philip Mitchell from Sydney and indeed he has written a paper about it in 2008. And I will again let you look through these features, but these are the features which he found preceded hypomania. The diagnostic feature of bipolar illness is the development of hypomania. So, but he looked back on hundreds of patients who'd had hypomania and looked back at their previous episodes of depression, and this is what he found as the features which indicate that patients will subsequently have a, the development of a hypomanic episode. So if a patient meets some of these criteria, 
you might decide that you're going to give them a mood stabilizer together with their antidepressant. Uh, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So what is depression? I'm not going to give you the DSM-5 uh, summary. or It's actually basically intense negativity, a filter descends over the brain and keeps all the positives out, allows in only negatives, and magnifies the negatives. Hence the, the definition, it's a negative view of yourself, your environment, and the future. And indeed, these are the things that actually patients are hammered with 24-7 by the depression. You are alone, no one understands, no one can help, the pain will never stop, you are worthless, you are a burden, and people would be better off without you. And of course, all of those things add up to make ending your life seem the logical uh, solution. Okay, if you want to choose an antidepressant, let's get one thing straight. We don't know what's wrong in depression. We discovered antidepressants by accident and we don't know what they do. But we do know, and this is the important bit, all our antidepressants are superior to placebo. So they do work. How they work is still a bit of a mystery. So if you were going to take an antidepressant but, and you would think, okay, unfortunately the research says I have to take it for a year after my first episode to try and stamp it out, um, then you would be interested in side effects. So I've written bestantidepressant.com. It's just a grid of side effects uh, for when you want to choose an antidepressant. The timeline of using antidepressants. So are basically the practicalities. So first of all, start off with a half a tablet. Doesn't matter what antidepressant you're going to give people, start off with a half a tablet. If the antidepressant happens to be in a capsule, such as Prozac, tell them to take one the first day, skip the second day. Um, that's so that people get gradually exposed to the antidepressant. What the research says is not wait four to six weeks for an effect. That's for the peak effect. If nothing is happening at the end of two weeks, and certainly at the end of three weeks, it is 80 to 90% certain that antidepressant will never work. So change it. At four weeks, um, if people have improved but not enough, push up the dose. And as I say, every couple of weeks after that, push up the dose until we get total eradication of symptoms. And do remember that, in fact, what antidepressants do is they suppress the symptoms below the surface. They don't eradicate it. So if people felt well and stopped their antidepressants, their rates of relapse are enormous because the illness has not gone away. And then how long do people take antidepressants? As I say to them, this is mental malignancy. It's, it's, and if you had a physical malignancy, you wouldn't debate with me how long to take the medication. You would take the medication based on what the research says. So the research says one episode of depression requires one year of treatment, Two episodes require two years of treatment. Multiple episodes means the brain has learned how to do this and you should take antidepressants indefinitely because relapse is otherwise pretty inevitable. Weight gain, in fact, one in three people on SSRIs gain weight according to a survey I did of Australian psychiatrists. Why? Because insulin receptors are triggered. If, if you give patients insulin for diabetes, a lot of them, as you know, gain weight. It's the same taking antidepressants. And even people who've eaten sensibly and kept their weight stable all their life experience weight gain. Some people get carbohydrate craving, especially with the older tricyclic antidepressants, but even with some of the modern ones. Antidotes, metformin, 
Topamax, maybe. Ozempic is great, but of course there are controls over that. A useful thing to say to people is to write down what they're eating before they eat it. Not, I've eaten a packet of Tim Tams, but I intend to eat a Tim Tam. I intend to eat a second Tim Tam. I, I intend to eat a third Tim Tam. And hopefully somewhere along the line, logic and conscience will cut in. Perspiration, quite a problem on antidepressants. Uh, some people describe uh, having to get out of bed in the middle of the night and change the sheets of their bed. Uh, catapress or probanthine can stop perspiration in lots of people. They can either take it on a regular basis or on a PRN basis, such as before they go out socially. Sexual side effects, they're dose-related. Uh, it's difficult to know whether or not they vary from SSRI to SSRI. It is worth trying. A Cochrane review many years ago suggested adding Zyban to SSRIs. By the way, GPs around the world for decades have been adding Zyban to SSRIs uh, without a problem. Um, and in theory, uh, drugs that do not give you sexual side effects are the ones uh, listed here, Valdoxin, Zyban, Edronix, and Aurorix. Dry mouth can be quite a problem, and indeed it's a problem for people in Seroquel. Sometimes Eurocarb, a prescription medication, helps, in fact, in very many people, but you have to take quite a number of the tablets. Xylemelts are lozenges you adhere inside your cheek, and they dissolve over a number of hours. Sometimes people use them overnight to protect their teeth during the night. Sometimes people say, I'm really tired or I'm weak, especially in hot weather. That is probably their blood pressure going down, especially on exercise, especially in hot weather. And you may tell, you may tell them they can drink more fluids, take more salt, drink more coffee, etc. If they're going to get postural dizziness, you may tell them pump their calves before they stand up uh, to drive blood up into the uh, core of their body um, and closer to their brain. Um, you can give them Florinef uh, on a PRN basis, matched with slow K because it retains sodium but loses potassium. Uh, but it's not a great treatment. I am continuously asking people how they are. So I say on a 0 to 10 scale, how anxious are you? How depressed are you? And uh, how suicidal are you? But that's perhaps the practice I run. Um, you may ask people how the emotional pain is. That's a very empathic question to ask people. Uh, how is your emotional pain on a 0 to 10 scale? And you know, I want to ask people about active suicidal ideas. How strong are they? Another question to ask people is, what percentage of normal you are you? And do keep in mind, people who have been depressed for a long time will say to you quite often, I don't remember what it's like to be normal. Be aware, as I say, that relapse is the statistical norm. So I tell people to put the word concentrate as a screensaver. If anybody sees it, they'll think it's a bit of personal good advice. It's not. It is a question. Can you concentrate today? If you can't concentrate and, re and remember, then either you're over-medicated or you're under-medicated. Another thing to say when people are really well and you knowing that they are at more than 50% chance of relapse is make themselves a one or two minute video selfie where they tell themselves they have been very unwell, but now they are fine again as evidenced by ABC so that they know that recovery is 
possible because when they become unwell, the illness will tell them recovery is not possible, but it's difficult to believe that when they, they are looking at themselves saying the opposite. You want to talk to people about things because it's not just pouring drugs in, as they say. And in fact, on doctorshealth.com.au, which I run anonymously, um, I've put up a number of papers about assertiveness, perfectionism, chronic anxiety, all of which predispose to depression and to relapses of depression. I've put up papers about relationship with the partner. It's very important that people do what they did when they met first, which is they talk alone together, not with the electronics going continuously, and they go out on dates, just the two of them together. Um, you want to teach them about argument resolution, um, so saying things like, I see your point, I think about it, I'd like you to see my point, which is whatever, instead of emphasizing things and raising their voice, you say, I feel eight out of 10 about this, or five out of 10, so at least everybody knows where they stand. And a useful thing to also ask people is, if you had to relive your childhood, what do you wish was different? What do you wish had never happened or was different? And that zeroes in on the problems that people see in their upbringing. And are there past events that are painful when you recall them? Um, they may be traumatic events, they may be emotional distress, they may be relationship issues. And how bad is the pain on a zero to 10 scale? If someone says the pain is eight out of 10 when I think about a certain event, it's like having an abscess inside. It has to be fixed before the condition settles down. Let me just tell you the complication of depression, as we all know, which is suicide. And if we tell our families to drive safely, maybe we've missed the point of what keeps them safe. So I will ask you to reflect, uh, what's the commonest cause of death and injury in Australia? in these age groups, 50 to 24, etc. So under 45, what kills and injures people? And the answer is depression leading to suicide. Um, it, it is quite a shock to people. We don't see public service ads about uh, don't get depressed or uh, other advice which I'll come on to. Um, but suicide kills a busload of people per week in Australia and attempted suicide is a plane load of people every day. So you do have to ask about suicide. So you start off with, do you wish you did not wake up in the morning? And it does not put ideas into people's head. Or the research says the exact opposite. Talk, asking about suicide lessens the risk of suicide. Do you actually wish you were dead? Are these thoughts weak, medium, or strong? Have you thought of doing something to yourself? And how strong are those thoughts on a zero to 10 scale? How bad is your emotional pain on a zero to 10 scale? As I say, shows that you understand what's going on inside them. Have you done something to yourself? Occasionally people will say, look, I took a pack of sleeping tablets and lay down and I woke up the next morning. That is a very determined suicide attempt where people do what they think is going to be fatal and don't seek help. Or have you deliberately done dangerous things and you don't suggest what they may be, but people do things like drive with their eyes closed, or walk across the road without looking. Um, suicide prevention, uh, if you want to read some of the advanced things that uh, psychiatrists like me do, look at intensivesuicideprevention.com. But I've come up with this an as phrase, have a heart. A is for analgesics, stop the emotional pain. 
give people benzodiazepines. They're not going to get addicted to one packet of benzodiazepines. They can stop the pain. They can put themselves to sleep rather than uh, do something much more dangerous. As they, they can have non-fatal oblivion. Um, Seroquel is useful. So you want to instill hope that they will get better. Empathy, that yes, you do understand and what the depression is telling them. Antidepressants. Why not give them two antidepressants if they're really seriously ill, like we do in every other branch of medicine, especially the ones that I have told you are safe to combine? And you want to reassure people, which means you want to see them regularly. Every couple of days, as a doctor who got better said to me, no other branch of medicine would tell a patient with a life-threatening illness to come back in a week. And send texts. Even if you can't see them, you might ask them to send you a text um, provided you've got a phone for just for your practice so they don't intrude on your personal time or you tell them certainly don't ring it but they can text it and you may want to refer patients and their friends and their families to intoughtimestext.org.au because the problem is we can never deal with the number of people who are suicidal. Um, the Australian Bureau of Statistics only a few months ago have come up with figures that four million Australians have seriously contemplated suicide. That is you know, amazing, about 15% of the population have seriously contemplated suicide. Um, and if they can be persuaded to phone a crisis line, that may make everybody else feel better, but it rarely is going to fix anything in one call. So they are good as an emergency, but something else needs to be done because the suicidality has gone for weeks. You and every other mental health professional is overwhelmed. So we actually have come up with this concept where people don't need any training. They go onto this website, see the text, and um, with just one click, they download those texts uh, onto their phone. And this is my last slide. So people come across screens like this on their phone. They, say, they think, oh, that message is good. You would never advise a friend to die. Tell yourself what you'd tell a friend. So they click either as a text or a WhatsApp message. They can personalize it, hey, John, and uh, this is from Joe, uh, and send it. Um, and it's the same with the dozens and dozens of messages we have there. We are always interested in new texts being submitted to us, so please do. Um, and indeed, a very useful thing to say to people when they talk to you about being suicidal is, would you advise a friend of yours with your problems to kill himself or herself? And they say, of course not. So why are you wanting to do it? So uh, on that rather confrontational but pivotal uh, ending, I hope that what you, you found what I said very useful. My name is David Horgan. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.